Secondly, even the brief golden age of the last half century may turn out to have sown the seeds of future catastrophe. Over the last few decades, we have been disturbing the ecological equilibrium of our planet in myriad new ways with what seemed likely to be dire consequences. A lot of evidence indicates that we are destroying the foundations of human prosperity in an orgy of reckless consumption. Finally, we can congratulate ourselves on the unprecedented accomplishments of modern sapiens only if we completely ignore the fate of all other animals. Much of the vaunted material wealth that shields us from disease and famine was accumulated at the expense of laboratory monkeys, dairy cows, and conveyor belt chickens. Over the last two centuries, tens of billions of them have been subjected to a regime of industrial exploitation whose cruelty has no precedent in the animals of planet Earth, rather, the annals of planet Earth. If we accept a mere tenth of what animal rights activists are claiming, then modern industrial agriculture might well be the greatest crime in history. When evaluating global happiness, it is wrong to count the happiness only of the upper classes, the Europeans or of men. Perhaps it is also wrong to consider only the happiness of humans. Counting happiness. So far we've discussed happiness as if it were largely a product of material factors, such as health, diet, and wealth. If people are richer and healthier, then they must also be happier. But is that really so obvious? Philosophers, priests, and poets have brooded over the nature of happiness for millennia. And many have concluded that social, ethical, and spiritual factors such have as great an impact on our happiness as material conditions. Perhaps people in modern affluent societies suffer greatly from alienation and meaninglessness despite their prosperity. And perhaps our less well-to-do ancestors found much contentment in community, religion, and a bond with nature. In recent decades, psychologists and biologists have taken up the challenge of studying scientifically what really makes people happy. Is it money, family, genetics, or perhaps virtue? The first step is to define what is to be measured. The generally acceptable definition of happiness is subjective well-being. Happiness according to this view, is something I feel inside myself, a sense of either immediate pleasure or long-term contentment with the way my life is going. If it's something felt inside, how can it be measured from outside? Presumably, we can do so by asking people to tell us how they feel. So psychologists or biologists 
who wanted to assess how happy people feel, give them questionnaires to fill out and tally the results. A typical subjective well-being questionnaire asks interviewees to grade on a scale of 0 to 10 their agreement with statements such as, I feel pleased with the way I am. I feel that life is very rewarding. I am optimistic about the future. And life is good. The researcher then adds up all the answers and calculates the interviewee's general level of subjective well-being. Such questionnaires are used in order to correlate happiness with various objective factors. One study might compare a thousand people who earn $100,000 a year with a thousand people who earn $50,000. If the study discovers that the first group has an average subjective well-being level of 8.7, while the latter has an average of only 7.3, the researcher may reasonably conclude that there is a positive correlation between wealth and subjective well-being. To put it in simple English, money brings happiness. The same method can be used to examine whether people living in democracies are happier than people living in dictatorships, and whether married people are happier than singles, divorcees, or widowers. This provides a grounding for historians who can examine wealth, political freedom, and divorce rates in the past. If people are happier in democracies and married people are happier in divorcees rather than divorcees, a historian has a basis for arguing that the democratization process of the last few decades contributed to the happiness of humankind. Whereas while the latter has an average of only 7.3, the researcher may reasonably conclude that there is a positive correlation between wealth and subjective well-being. To put it in simple English, money brings happiness. The same method. This provides a grounding for historians. If people are happier in democracies and married people are happier than divorcees, a historian has the basis for arguing that the democratization of process of the last few decades contributed to the happiness of humankind, whereas the growing rates of divorce indicates an opposite trend. This way of thinking is not flawless, but before pointing out some of the holes, it is worth considering the findings. One interesting conclusion is that money does indeed bring happiness, but only up to a point. And beyond that point, it has little significance for people stuck at the bottom of the economic ladder. More money means greater happiness. If you're an American single mother earning $12,000 a year, cleaning a house, other cleaning houses, and you suddenly win $500,000 in the lottery, you'll probably experience significant and long-term surge in your subjective well-being. You'll be able to find rather feed and clothe your children without sinking further into debt. However, if you're a top executive earning $250,000 a year and you win $1 million in the lottery, or your company board suddenly decides to double your salary, your surge is likely to last only a few weeks. 
according to the empirical findings, it's almost certainly not going to make a big difference to the way you feel over the long run. Why snazz your car? Move into a palatial home? Get used to drinking Chateau Partreux instead of California Cabernet? And it'll soon all seem routine and unexceptional. Another interesting finding is that illness decreases happiness in the short term, but is a source of long-term distress only if a person's condition is constantly deteriorating or if the disease involves ongoing and debilitating pain. People who are diagnosed with chronic illness, such as diabetes, are usually depressed for a while. But if the illness does not get worse, they adjust to their new condition and rate their happiness as highly as healthy people do. Imagine that Lucy and Luke are middle-class twins who agree to take part in a subjective well-being study. On the way back from the psychology laboratory, Lucy's car is hit by a bus, leaving Lucy with a number of broken bones and a permanently lame leg. Just as the rescue crew is cutting her out of the wreckage, the phone rings and Luke shouts that he has won the lottery's $10 million jackpot. Two years later, she'll be limping and he'll be a lot richer, but when the psychologists come around for a follow-up study, they're both likely to give the same answers they did on the morning of that fateful day. Family and community seem to have more impact on our happiness than money and health. People with strong families who live in tight-knit and supportive communities are significantly happier than people whose families are dysfunctional and who have never found or never sought a community to be part of. Marriage is particularly important. Repeated studies have found that there is a very close correlation between good marriages and high subjective well-being, between bad marriages and misery. This holds true irrespective of economic or even physical conditions. An impecunious, impecunious, invalid, surrounded by uh, invalid, surrounded by a loving spouse, a devoted family, and a warm community may well feel better than an alienated billionaire, provided that the invalid's poverty is not too severe, and that his illness is not degenerative or painful. This raises the possibility that the immense improvement in material conditions over the last two centuries was offset by the collapse of the family and the community. If so, the average person might well be no happier today than in 1800. Even the freedom we value so highly may be working against us. We can choose our spouses, friends, and neighbors, but they can choose to leave us. With the individual wielding unprecedented power to decide her own path in life, we find it ever harder to make commitments. We thus live in an increasingly lonely world of unraveling communities and families. But the most important finding of all is happiness does not really depend on objective conditions of either wealth, health, or even community. Rather, it depends on the correlation between objective conditions and subjective expectations. If you want a bullock cart, get a bullock cart. You are content. 
If you want a brand new Ferrari and you get only a second-hand Fiat, you feel deprived. This is why winning the lottery has over time the same impact on people's happiness as a debilitating car accident. When things improve, expectations balloon. Consequently, even dramatic improvements in objective conditions can leave us dissatisfied. When things deteriorate, expectations shrink. Consequently, even a severe illness might leave you pretty much as happy as you were before. You might say that we didn't need a bunch of psychologists and their questionnaires to discover this. Prophets, poets, and philosophers realized thousands of years ago that being satisfied with what you already have is far more important than getting more of what you want. Still, it's nice when modern research, bolstered by lots of numbers and charts, reaches the same conclusions the ancients did.